the rich, complex, and sometimes hidden history of Silicon Valley. I'm Tanya Hall, and joining me is Dr. Margaret O'Mara, Howard and Francis Keller Endowed Professor of History at the University of Washington, New York Times writer and author of The Code, Silicon Valley and the Remaking of America. Welcome, Margaret. So great to be here. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Your newest book, The Code, was just published, um, but this isn't your first book with the Silicon Valley theme, is it? It isn't. This is, uh, I, uh, 15 years ago, I published a book that was based on my graduate dissertation that was about the Cold War and the origins of the tech industry and why tech grew in certain parts of the country and didn't grow in others. And the, the secret was military spending, which was not distributed evenly throughout the country. And so that got me hooked on the story and interested in the story of tech and particularly the story of this funny little valley in Northern California that was this unlikely contender to become the capital of the high tech world, but yet it did. So I think you just alluded to, but what motivated you to write the code specifically and how did you go about doing the research for the book? Well, I've, you know, I started looking at the history of Silicon Valley, gosh, back in the dot-com era when I first moved out to California. So it's now been a good two decades. And this in some ways is the book that I wished existed when I first moved out to the Bay Area. I'm not a tech person. I'm a historian. Um, I'm someone who um, kind of came out and was really curious about the history. And there really wasn't anything that told me the whole story and brought it together. We've had a lot of really great books written about the tech industry. We've had a lot of um, stories of particular companies. We've had biographies of iconic tech leaders. I like to think of this book as a biography of Silicon Valley. It starts when it was born as a tech, as an electronics hub in the middle part of the 20th century and ends pretty much yesterday. In a chapter of the code titled Risky Business, you write about something called the prudent man rule and how in the late 70s and early 80s, this concept helped drive investment and perhaps even the high tech boom itself. Yeah, this is one of those multiple stories that I discovered in the process of putting this book together that really is kind of this hidden political story of Silicon Valley. We, when we think of the valley, we think of free market entrepreneurship, we think of cowboy capitalists, we think of guys who are far, far away from, you know, Washington bureaucrats. But actually, throughout the Valley's history, there have been these really important moments where changes in policy have enabled Valley entrepreneurs, Valley tech investors to really capitalize on new technology and bring it to market. The prudent man rule was this restriction that was placed on large um, in pension funds, uh, you know, the, the funds that are that are investing people's retirement money, particularly the funds that were managed by, by unions and other very, very large um, uh, em employers and, and pension um, deliverers. And uh, there was a restriction in the mid-70s on whether they could um, invest in what was so-called risky investments, high-risk investments. They weren't, they weren't allowed to, which is a smart idea, you know, that, that only invest in blue chip, very, very safe things. Don't gamble with retirees' money. Um, no retiree wants their money gambled with. But at the time, tech investment and, v and what we would think of as high-tech VC kind of fell in that risky business category. So um, venture capitalists uh, who were not well-versed in the ways of lobbying in Washington kind of started a DIY lobbying effort um, to go to Washington to petition lawmakers to make it easier and create more incentives for um, for 
people to invest in tech and and for these these institutional investors to put their money into tech. And so the prudent man rule was changed in part because of that lobbying and also lobbying of the electronics industry. And also um, capital gains tax, which is the tax rate, special tax rate that you pay on um, investment um, and in profits on investment was lowered. It used to be really high. Now it's about 15%. It used to be in some cases close to you know, over close to 50%, believe it or not. And so that was, that was lowered. So there are all these moments in tech history where we see entrepreneurs, we see investors um, interacting with Washington policymakers in ways that are really critical to understanding how and why the industry evolved the way it did. E-commerce is everywhere today. You introduce, in fact, Marty Tenenbaum, a frustrated entrepreneur who pushed to digitize commerce in the earliest days of the internet. Tell us that story. That's another really fantastic story. One of the things I wanted to do in this book was not only to talk about the, the stories of the people that we know, the you know, first name basis people, the Steves and the Marks and the Bills and the people that the, the famous tech uh, icons, but also people like Marty Tenenbaum, who may not be a household name, but is also important to understanding how and why the Valley and more broadly the tech industry evolved the way it did. So um, Marty was there in the early 90s trying to think about how can we bring commerce to the internet. Now, this is at a time when the internet existed. It was formed in the late 60s. It was a project of the Defense Department. But for the first two decades of his existence, it was a um, it was restricted to only people who were grantees of getting federal money, federal research money, or they were working in the military. And there was no commercial activity allowed. Even by the 1980s, you could they were allowing some dot-com domains, but it was kind of like you you just, you couldn't buy and sell on the internet at all. Um, and so Tenenbaum is sort of walking around Stanford kind of thinking about, okay, how can we somehow introduce commercial activity to this? And one of the things he understood was that people aren't going to buy and sell things on the internet if they don't have some assurance that the money's going to go through, right? That there's some transactional guarantee that you're going to um, have a uh, you know, you're not going to lose your money somewhere in cyberspace. And so he, he was um, kind of right at the ground floor of forming a group of people in the Valley. And this sort of right at the time he started thinking about, about this, what DC lawmakers are in response to um, kind of internet uh, industry people saying, you know, this is, there's a great opportunity here. Um, this is where, you know, Al Gore, remember Vice President Al Gore, he got a lot of heat for allegedly saying, which he didn't quite say, that he invented the internet, but he didn't invent the internet. But he was really instrumental in the commercialization of the internet, turning the internet from this kind of little, this network that academic researchers could play on to something that you could buy and sell on and you could build businesses on. And so right at the same time that the internet is being, the commercial activity is being allowed into what they called the walled garden of the internet, Marty Tenenbaum and other folks in the Valley are like, okay, let's create a, some tech, a technological framework that allows safe transactions. And, and also let's get large, small and large companies help them show, show them, you know, Visa or 
Ford Motor Company, show them how they can bring their operations online. And this was really critical to the you know, beginning of the, what becomes the dot-com boom. It wasn't just, wasn't only these new startup companies. It was also big mainline old economy companies being like, oh yeah, we want a dot-com and we want to do, we want to have some, some either enterprise transactions, B2B or B2C transactions online. And so um, Tenenbaum and others kind of helped show them how to do it. With the eventual convergence of 5G, cloud, artificial intelligence, and extended reality, what lessons should we keep in mind that we should have learned maybe from the early days of Silicon Valley? <laughs> well, there are a lot of lessons. You know, it's funny when you really look, I mean, that's one of the reasons I wanted to, to write the book and why I think the book is important right now, not just for people in technology, but also tech users, which is pretty much everybody, uh, which is understanding how we got to now. So some of the things we're really worried about now, um, both people inside the industry and also tech users and regulators are worried about is this kind of, okay, what is the you know what's how can the, how can these be dangerous tools how can these be weapons as well as as well as tools and this has been a worry that's been present in the industry since the very beginning since the birth of the all digital computer in the 1940s that um computer you know computer scientists themselves have been the ones often raising the alarm saying you know what these things are marvelous but they also have the potential to be dangerous um or there's you know there's there is a you know we need to be aware of of what the unintended consequences could be of this technology if it's not applied very carefully and so and worries about privacy the worries that um individuals data and privacy can be compromised in an electronic environment those have been present and been part of the public conversation in the united states and elsewhere since the 1960s in fact in the 60s and early 70s there was a whole raft of legislation that was introduced on capitol hill i talk about it in the book that um, was all about how do we protect individual americans data from data banks, these mainframe computers that have you know, the punch cards and have all the statistical information. But the whole conversation, this is so interesting, the, all the, the target of all the angst, right now we're all, you know, everyone's worried about Facebook. And then there was obviously no Facebook. But back then the target of, you know, who's going to steal, what, whose computers are bad guys, who's the bad guy that's going to steal your privacy, it was the government. Because the U.S. government was one of the biggest users of computer power um, in the early days, right? And and think about like the government, you know, the Census Bureau and the you know the Pentagon, you know, the the draft the draft board, like all these all this information that is now put on punch cards, digitized, processed, put in these big databases. And this is also the 60s and early 70s. What else is going on? Vietnam, Watergate trust in government is eroding. And so um, it's so interesting to look at these older conversations and realize, you know, we've been worried about this stuff for a really long time. And some of the things that were legislated as a result, which the Federal Privacy Act of 1974, that um, the US Federal Pri the One Privacy Act kind of that we have, was, was uh, enacted in the wake of that, but it was all about government computers. It was all about individuals' right to know what the government knows about them. No mention of, of business, no, no mention of, you know, and look, uh, private sector was using um, electronic data processing. It was going to, the, going to town with it. It was using it for marketing and all sorts of things, but that was not, that was not legislated away. And, and, you know, hey, if it had been, we wouldn't have Facebook, we wouldn't have Google, we wouldn't have found a way to monetize the internet without, a million pop-up ads <laughs> and at but now we're realizing the problems that are created when you have this kind of wild west of 
very little, you know, data collection or protection. It just there's 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 very little restrictions on what these companies can do. And now there's a sort of right now on Capitol Hill, there's both Republicans and Democrats. It's like the one thing that both parties can agree on is like we need to do something about this. And that's that's what we're working on now. Hey, there's something we can agree on. Yeah. Dr. Margaret O'Mara, Howard and Francis Keller Endowed Professor of History at the University of Washington, New York Times writer and author of The Code, Silicon Valley and the Remaking of America. Um, great book. And uh, certainly, I think um, if somebody wants to get a copy of that, uh, Margaret, how can they do that? Or maybe if they just want to connect with you, how can they do that? Well, you can connect with me and you can hit that buy button to get a copy of the book um, by going to margaretomara.com. Um, you can also find me on Twitter at Margaret O'Mara and um, uh, any other place you can find your social media, except I'm not yet on TikTok, but I'll work on it. <laughs> work on that. Thank you so much, Margaret. And if you guys want to connect with me, you certainly can. Um, I highly recommend the book. Uh, she's done a lot of, she's definitely done a lot of research. It's a very interesting read. Um, you can find my interviews right here or find me at tanyahall.net. Thanks for watching.